Hey, this is Brad. We know there are a lot of things competing for your time. However, if you've taken the time to listen to our podcast and you like what we're doing, we'd love it if you would subscribe, review, or rate us. Thank you so much. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. No, this is not a mistake or an error. Brad Johnson is taking a bit of a break from his hosting duties this week. And we are, pun very much intended, turning the tables on the corner table where I'll be host for an episode and interview the man himself. So I'm a reporter for Eater Los Angeles, a restaurant, food, bar, hospitality journalist for a publication that's very specific to LA. And I cover every aspect of this industry. And so if it's happening in hospitality in Los Angeles, my team covers it. And that is where I met Brad Johnson, who I first interviewed back in 2018. And in 2018 is when we became colleagues, but I'm now happy to call Brad Johnson a friend and very much look forward to this conversation. I hope you'll enjoy getting to know more about him and so that you can see the span of his career and his influence in and outside of the hospitality realm. So if you don't know, now you will know. Brad Johnson is a hospitality entrepreneur and second-generation restaurateur who opened many notable restaurants, bars, nightclubs, all in Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New York, throughout his 40-plus year career. Brad's career started in the mid-70s at his father Howard's legendary Upper West Side restaurant called The Cellar and spots like the 2020 Club, which he partnered with songwriter, producer, superstar songwriter, producers, Valerie Simpson and the late Nick Ashford. Brad also opened the New Orleans style hotspot Memphis in New York and along with Windows, a 10,000 square foot dining restaurant in downtown LA, a huge space, by the way, in addition to opening the famed Roxbury in 1989. Yes, the Roxbury, that one, which had such an impact on club and nightlife culture, but was immortalized in the 1998 film starring Will Ferrell, Night at the Roxbury. What a different time and era for Los Angeles or any city for that matter. Uh, an amazing one too. But And then he also opened in 1993, Georgia with partners, and I can't name them all, but there's some really great names and uh, amongst the company that went there and invested there, like former Laker Norm Nixon and Denzel. I don't need to say his last name, it's Denzel. But he didn't stop there. He also opened Post and Beam, which is when I got to know him, in a part of Los Angeles that doesn't really have many sit-down places to have a cocktail or a full like course meal. It's in a homey, cozy nook of Los Angeles and in a historic Black neighborhood that's now an award-winning restaurant, which he left behind in 2019. Post and Beam also received the 2020 Jonathan Gold Award, which is a true honor that bears the name of LA's beloved and late food writer. And because Brad doesn't sit still, he launched a podcast in 2021, the one that we're on right now, Corner Table Talk, where he talks about food, drink, culture. And I have to say the guests have been amazing, from Ta-Nehisi Coates, Chef Marcus Samuelson, Fab Five Freddy, Regina King. I feel very blessed to have been a guest with such amazing company and on a podcast where conversations flow so freely and provoke so much thought. So please welcome Brad Johnson. Thank you, Mona. And I, and I feel like my job is in jeopardy now. <laughs> you're, you're way too good and way too smooth. So I might have to find something else to do. Not at all. You uh, you please stay in this position because you're so good at it and, and I enjoy it every week. So don't you dare. I'm going to just jump right in and give you some rapid fire questions. And are you ready? 
I'm ready. Let's go. As someone who takes their playlist, their personal music playlist very seriously, what are you listening to these days? I know you're a former and probably still current music head. Maybe you can relate to some of these choices of mine, but I, I bounce around a lot. And depending on what I'm doing, like if I'm working, writing, I need no vocals. So that might means Keith Jarrett or some kind of solo piano or classical. In terms of stuff, like I'm on my bike and I'm active, I've been into the dramatics did a great album, Drama 5 in 1975, which I've been listening to on repeat recently quite a bit. But I bounced between Gil Scott Heron, Nina Simone, my son, Bryce Fine. I love his music. I really do. I'm not just saying that. Miles Davis, Joni Mitchell, and, and one of the newer artists, Cleo Soul, her album I really love. Always Chaka, always some Valerie Simpson, Nick Ashford, that playlist. I do. Where are you ordering out from the most? Any kind of takeout that you get on a regular basis, like a place that you just can't stay away from? My wife and I, we cook a lot at home. And typically, if we order out, it's the simple stuff. It's like pizza. I, I know that sounds a little boring. That's Not what we all. do. My son is a big, he, he spends way too much money on ordering out, but I'm a simple guy and I like to actually go out to eat. So I'm, I'm not a big order at home guy. And when you do go out, where do you like to go? Depending on where I am, my wife and I have been spending a lot of time in Miami. We're renovating a house there. So I've been out a little bit as COVID has started to lift, although Florida, in some cases, you would know that there was a pandemic here. But uh, we've been to the Red Rooster, which is phenomenal. The room is absolutely beautiful. I went to a pop-up last week, a very talented chef and his wife are doing called Rosie's, which was fantastic. I'm also a big fan of Jamaican food. And there's a place here called Finger Licking that I love. For a fancy dinner in Miami, I've been to the Satai. In LA, I like to meet friends at the Tower Bar for drinks. When my wife and I landed last weekend, we went right from the airport to Doolin's and got uh, some <laughs> fried chicken, greens, and macaroni and cheese. Then we had a great dinner with uh, my former partner and chef, Govind, at the Lobster Sunset on Friday night. Oh, that, nice. That was pretty special. Yeah. All special places, I know. If you had your choice when you're going to one of these places, would it be wine, a cocktail, or beer? I, I don't mind a cocktail. I'm partial to a good martini. And I also like a little Cabernet here and there. As, as much time as I've spent around alcohol, I'm not a big drinker. I found that it made it easier for me to stay up you know, late at night and make sense by the end of the night. So I, I tended to leave the booze alone. But I'll, I'll have a cocktail, maybe a vodka gimlet before dinner or something like that if we're out. That's an old school one that I don't mm -hmm. think I've ordered in a long time. And they're <laughs> so good. Vodka again. And then back to the things that you're listening to, are you checking out any other podcasts? I am. Yeah, I love the one I think I listen to the most often is the New York Times writer Ezra Klein. He's such a smart guy. I've tried to study his style a little bit because I just think he's so prepared for his guests. I tend to, to listen to that quite a bit. 2020, Mona was a challenging year. I discovered a podcast called 10% Happier, a guy named Dan Harris. And I just felt that I needed something to help me with just feeling a little bit better. The last couple of years, I, we'd left LA and away from family and with all that was going on in the world and the pandemic. And I found that Dan Harris's show, 10% Happier, just dove into a lot of Buddhist meditation and how to be just 10% happier. <laughs> and yeah. I'll, I'll take 10% happier any day. Okay. Now that we've gotten through... All of those rapid fire questions. I'd love to start at talking about your roots. 
namely your parents, Howard and Phyllis. I've spoken to a couple of your friends, some close friends that you've known for decades, and each one of them mentioned how much your parents meant to them. From what everyone described, your father was absolutely larger than life, gregarious, funny, handsome. Your mother was very down to earth, very sweet, very kind. What was it like growing up in the household that you did? Just give us a sense of what that was like. Sure. My my mom was Italian. My dad was black. And they took a chance getting married in the early 50s when you know, interracial marriage was not legal everywhere. Two very distinctly different personalities. My father, as you described him, was very outgoing, charismatic, funny, quick-witted. My mom was, you know, the homemaker and uh, she worked her entire life. In fact, once we started getting into the restaurant business, my mom was always a presence in whatever restaurant that I had. She became an event planner. I've heard people say that maybe I get my hospitality gene more from her than I do from my dad, just because my mom, being the Italian mom, she just wanted to take care of everyone and make sure that everybody was good. So growing up, it was interesting. It was at a time when there weren't a lot of mixed kids around. And I think, to be quite honest, I suffered from a little bit of an identity complex. I didn't look like the other kids, neither the white kids or the black kids necessarily, but I identified with the black kids because those were my friends. That stayed with me for a while, and that was a little bit of a challenge I found, even as I got older, that stayed with me, just wanting to fit in. And how did you navigate that, developing your sense of identity? You strike me as someone who, you don't strike me, I know you to be someone who knows very much who they are. It took a while. My parents split up when I was about 11 years old. We had moved from New York City to New Jersey. And we're living the suburban life in Inglewood, New Jersey. Then my parents hit a rough patch and uh, split up. And then I acted out. I went from being a really good student to a terrible student and skipping school. I, I, I found that I had to find the, the troublemakers to make myself known as definitively amongst them. And it got me in trouble. Fortunately, my parents, although they were separated, still were paying attention. And they sent my ass away to school. (laughs) They sent me to an all-boys school in uh, Meriden, New Hampshire, which is in the middle of nowhere. And it saved me. It really saved me, Mona, I have to say, in hindsight. I was headed for trouble. And it turned me around. It gave me a little room to grow and mature. While I still carried some of that insecurity in terms of how I identified myself internally. I think I always projected a certain level of confidence, even though I was very shy and and insecure. It gave me a little bit more room to mature. So I felt once high school was behind me, I felt a little bit more equipped to handle my insecurities. Got it. So from there, you went to University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you make that transition? What was that like for you? What year did you that get was, there? I finished high school in 1975, mm-hmm. and I got a basketball scholarship to UMass. So that made the decision quite easy. It was a Division One program where Julius Irving had gone to school, and he was one of my heroes on the court. So that was an easy yes. They also happened to have an outstanding restaurant management program. And my dad, by that time, had purchased the cellar. So I thought if the NBA didn't call, I could always get a job, go back to my old (laughs) dishwashing job with my dad at the cellars. When you were doing your dishwashing, how old were you when you started those tasks? 16, I think. Oh, wow. And what was that like for you? It was great. It was being in a room. It was the early 70s. 
And it was the Black is Beautiful generation. It was the first generation of beneficiaries of the civil rights movement. You had the editors-to-be, the Susan Taylors, Bruce Llewellyns, the Arthur Ashes, the um, Ashford and Simpsons, Phyllis Hyman's, the Eisen Brothers, all the Black elite. It was before Black folks started to really migrate to other places. We still congregated in one room. So you had the, the local mailman and the high-flying corporate guy all in one space. It was just so dynamic. The fashion, the clothes, the cigarette smoke, all of it. I love it. <laughs> Back when that was a factor. Yeah, we're going to go to UMass in a moment. But now that we're talking about you witnessing all of this at a very young age amongst the Black is Beautiful era with all these superstars, what did you take in the most when you were seeing this. My family is originally mm -hmm. from New York too. Mm -hmm. And if there's one discussion that I remember having with my uncles was how the cellar was on the Upper West Side, which mm -hmm. blows people's minds today. They're like, excuse me? Um, but yeah, it was a youthful young place where retail stores were open until one, two in the morning, because that's just the nature of the people who frequented them because they lived there and would go out to a bar and then, I don't know, pick up groceries or something along the lines. What a shift in New York culture of all places for your father to have a club. What do you remember most about that place? There's so much. My takeaway from that time, so many lessons that informed me and continue to inform me. It could be as simple as I was standing next to a, a friend of mine. He was a, a hustler, actually, and a street guy. I was telling him after I'd been at the cellar for some years and we were sold out every night, the room was packed and I was standing there with him and I said, man, I want to go open up a place. I want to open up a place twice as big as this. He looked over at me and said, man, sold out is better than half full. And <laughs> you know, I just never forgot that. The lessons, Mona, came in so many ways. I remember when I joined my dad after college, my age group then found the seller as well. So we had his generation and my generation combined, and our sales just went through the roof. I was booking the bands, R&B bands like Keith Sweat, Platinum Hook, Najee, Melissa Morgan, and the New York City Jazz Festival was in town. And we decided to, my dad wanted to switch to jazz for one weekend. We went from standing room only crowds to like dwindling crowds to nobody. And the same guys that would come in and make a beeline over to me to shake my hand so that they could show that they knew the owner would walk right by me and ignore me. It just stayed with me. And I realized at that point that it's not about me. As cool as you may think you are, because you've got these things around you, it, that can change. So know who your friends are. I took many lessons from that, from that time. I'm sure. Including knowing that it's not always about you is probably a life lesson that everyone could learn early <laughs> to get through the bumps in life. So let's go back to UMass and having a basketball scholarship. It's 1975. Mm -hmm. It was a hell of a time to be in Massachusetts in general. Would you agree? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly would. UMass was a little revolutionary, quite honestly. We had a Black cultural studies department and a place that we would all congregate. There was a, a Caribbean restaurant in the basement it was called the New Africa House. And a very strong musical presence there. Max Roach, his son, uh, also went to UMass, a good friend of mine. To give you an example of the consciousness of the African-American student body at UMass, 
We played in an arena called The Cage, which was their old gymnasium. They now have a new gym and it's very fancy. Back then we played in a place called The Cage with a dirt track around the inside. It was still a, a fun place to play. But prior to our game starting, when they would sing the national anthem, all of the black students would sit in one section and they would not stand during the national anthem in 1975. It was an environment like that. Boston was a tricky place to go and play. We would play in Boston a couple of times and had the N-word shouted at us from various places. And it had some rough spots, but UMass, the campus was amazing. I remember when I decided to go there, I was visiting there in the spring before, I, before we actually agreed. It was a, a beautiful day and they were playing Frisbee on the lawn and Marvin Gaye was blasting out of dormitory windows and the people were playing basketball outside and it, it just looked like a lot of fun. And I think that's what did it for me. And I know I should sound a little bit more cerebral and that it was a you know scholastic choice, but what I saw was the vibe and I was feeling that. Got it. Then when you left, that was when you realized, okay, I'm going to go back to my dad's business and really get my feet wet. Did you even start to visualize what you wanted for yourself in the hospitality game? I, I would say no. I had some idea that, yeah, of course, I had a business that I could walk into. I had been working there every summer between my years at UMass. I was familiar with the work environment. It's interesting because I, I don't know that restaurateur was something that I consciously thought about. And, and But then as I would see my dad, I modeled his style, wore the blazer that he wore, the Gucci loafers that he wore, and the tan slacks that he wore. He really created that image for me in my head. That, that was something that I could actually be, not just a restaurant owner, but there was something specific about being a restaurateur. I think that certainly got instilled in me from my experience with my dad. But then my ambition kicked in and I wanted to get out on my own and see if I could replicate what he had done. That brings me to my next question. Of all businesses to get into, hospitality, nightlife, restaurants, the failure rate is so high. Why on earth get into this crazy business? Yes. And, and maybe the failure rate that we see today was the same back then, but there, the, there was not as much conversation around it. The world was simpler then. It was just something that came naturally to me. Once I'd spent time in the cellar, I realized that I had gained some knowledge and I had a knack for being in a room and knowing how to make a room work. I had some interest in music. I was booking the bands at that time and I enjoyed doing that. And I always loved music. That was something that thought about. But when the opportunity came to pursue my own place, which just happened in a very funny way, I happened to get stood up uh, by a young lady who was supposed to take me to a Nick game. Back in those days, you didn't have cell phones, so you had to <laughs> right. wait at home for your phone to ring. It was 7.30, 7.40, and the game starts at 7.30, and she you know, hadn't called. So I went for a walk down Columbus Avenue and just decided to pop into a little bar that had the game on. And long story short, I met a young lady who knew Carly Simon, who I had met on Martha's Vineyard, and her boyfriend had just leased a space across the street, and that became Memphis. So that's, right. how, that's how things happen. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Memphis. Okay. It, it's on the mm -hmm. Upper West Side. From the, all the reading that I, I took in about Memphis and um, other folks who have been they felt like you were bringing different cultures and ideas into one room. And also that, that 
a, a New Orleans style restaurant back then just didn't really exist outside of New Orleans. So it, it seems like a very bold step to take something that's largely unfamiliar and undone. It feels, or at least my experience with successful restaurants, when you bring certain cultures into a room and it just sticks, it just jibes. Why do you feel like Memphis became such a popular spot for people to, to hang out? Well, for one reason, my partner in the venture, Al Corley, he was originally the uh, Stephen Carrington character on Dynasty. Right. Al had fantastic taste. He found this beautiful space and he located our chef, a guy named Richard Hughes, who has since moved back to New Orleans and owns a fantastic place. Mona, if you ever get there, you go to the Pelican Club. He's owned this place for 25 years uh, in New Orleans and it's fantastic. So we had Richard, we had this beautiful space and another friend uh, of Al's, a guy who had studied Egyptology at Yale, an architect named Todd Ruff, who has become a brilliant friend of mine who also designed Georgia in LA, these amazing people came together and Memphis was born out of all of that sweat and inspiration and ideas and talent. You talk about a culture clash. Again, we're back in the, the mid seventies, the, the late seventies, and that seems not that long ago, but the, the truth is that our clientele at the seller was, I would say 98 or 99% black. There was some concern. We were only 20 blocks away at Memphis. What would happen when my dad's crowd from the cellar merged with the you know Upper West Side crowd at 75th Street? Would that work? I was the only one of the, the few partners that had a restaurant in Manhattan. So it was likely that clientele was going to show up. And they did. And it was phenomenal. We had a lively bar. We had about a 75-foot bar and I'd venture to say that it was the most integrated restaurant on the Upper West Side, maybe in Manhattan during its time. Jezebel had opened just before it in the theater district in Alberta. What she was doing there was certainly drawing a crowd, but Memphis was a unique place in its day. I think a lot of people remember it for that. Indeed. There's also something to be said about getting ahead of things in the hospitality world. Taking a type of cuisine or a concept that's been uh, accomplished before is one thing and a fairly safe bet. But it seems like you tried to do things that weren't really done before in the neighborhoods that they were in, <laughs> which is risky, <laughs> extremely. I've been covering this industry for a long time, and I do wish that more restaurant owners would take into consideration certain elements and do a, a proper profit and loss statement and figure out whether their actual audience is in a specific neighborhood that they're in. But what we're talking about with you, with Memphis and George's was unprecedented. What brought you there? <laughs> it's as much a... a sociological experiment for me as it is a culinary experiment. I see the world through the lens of black and white. I just do. I'm an American kid, baby boomer. I'm a black man, but I am very race attuned. And in my business, I've seen how race plays out. Sometimes it's been to my benefit. Sometimes it's been to my disadvantage. But each time, like in the case of Georgia, if you remember, Mona, this was 1992, 93, we were on the heels of the Rodney King verdict and the city was polarized. I, I wanted to open up this upscale Southern restaurant on Melrose Avenue and bring a team of investors together, Denzel and Norm and Eddie Murphy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but also Lou Adler, Connie Stevens. We had a, a mixed group of folks. 
And it was my vision that we would have this great place celebrating Southern food. I talked to Edna Lewis about coming out. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But I really wanted this multi-ethnic, multi-generational room celebrating Southern food. That's what we had intended for Georgia. And that has been my motivation to bring people of all kinds together. And yes, sometimes part of it is an inspiration with, say, Menemsha in Venice that was inspired by the, the fishing village of Martha's Vineyard. We were very specific about how we did that restaurant. I had recipes from Ann Vanderhoop, who owned a place called the Aquinta, Native American on Martha's Vineyard for banana cream pie. And I sent our chefs to Martha's Vineyard to go to all my favorite restaurants and get the recipes. On a culinary level, I'd like to think that I've been a little adventurous, maybe foolish sometimes, but you know, <laughs> definitely adventurous. <laughs> I'm glad that you did. Let's talk about your move westward. You pretty much just said, I'm done with New York. I'm seeing some things. I got to make the move to the yeah. West Coast. I'm sure your friend circle was like, you're crazy. Why would you do that? What brought you westward exactly? I've read a few interviews that have said some things, but I'd like to hear it from your mouth. Why on earth move all your activities, your world, your life, your friend circle west? There's the obvious attraction that anyone would have that's grown up in a climate that has four seasons and looking at California and the weather right there. That's enough of a reason to move. But the honest truth is New York had begun to, to close in on me a little bit. I've always been someone who loved weather. So that was going to be a factor. One of my very close friends had gotten arrested and was facing some pretty heavy charges. He actually helped me with my financial start, the restaurant and the restaurant business, which is not a very widely known fact. My dad and I, when I decided to get involved in Memphis and open up my own place, my father and I had a breakup. He didn't want to see me do that. So other than the money that I had saved from bartending and the tips that I made and the little bit of salary I managed to save by working at the cellar, I had to borrow money in order to you know, have enough money to invest in Memphis. And this particular friend arranged a loan for me of what they you know, called street money. I took it and that was the only money I couldn't go to a bank. I didn't have anything to show. Life in New York had just started to, to make me feel like I was ready for a change. I'd, I'd played against Norm Nixon in college. Norm and Debbie had been in New York for a sweet charity. Around the time I opened Memphis, we got reacquainted and Norm had said, man, if you ever decide to come to LA, I'd love to do something with you out there. And I decided to at some point take him up on it. I had met Denzel. Denzel had actually been coming to my dad's place to sell her. So before he was super famous, I, I knew him a little bit in New York. I just felt the energy was moving towards Los Angeles for me. And quite honestly, a lot of the folks that I knew were also moving to LA towards the latter part of the 80s. It just felt like a good time to make a move. Excellent. I'm so glad you did. <laughs> I wouldn't have met you. <laughs> now, when you came here, you certainly made a mark, not just with Georgia's, but the Roxbury became its own thing. I mean, beyond a nightclub where it doesn't matter what the generation is. They might know about Studio 54 and they might know about the Roxbury. And I'm sure that the movie has a role with that, but it, it was something different. Why do you think that? It was just one of those things when we had the right space on Sunset, just in front of the Chateau Mermont. The building was phenomenal. It lent itself to what we wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to have live music and I knew that we wanted to have food. We also wanted to have a late night reason for people to hang out. And uh, we felt that we could offer a one-stop shop. 
That's what the goal was. We put together a list of investors, again, with Norm Nixon's help, that included music impresarios, you name it. We had Raj Kanodi, a plastic surgeon, and people that were really important in the LA community. Then we got the benefit of the folks who were friends of theirs. Our first party at Roxbury was uh, Michael Lippman, one of our investors, was in business with Bernie Taupin, who was Elton John's songwriting partner. We threw a party for Bernie Taupin and Elton John came and it was on from there. I had Matt Robinson, who my dad and his dad had been friends and I knew he was in LA and he was a cool guy and DJ and had a lot of you know interesting friends. So I went to Matt and said, Matt, I'd like you to DJ our, our place. And he did. And Matt just started attracting all of the stars on the third floor. We had Roy Gaines playing blues on the first floor and it was magic. It just worked. A buddy of mine, a guy named John Enos, was a big male model. Um, he more recently was on Sex in the City as the, the well-hung stud, mm -hmm. but a really handsome <laughs> uh, male model. John attracted Cindy Crawford and Christy Turlington and Naomi Campbell. It was the 80s and the models were the superstars. So we combined you know, the athletes, the, the models, and the actors, and it just all went crazy under one, one roof. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sure it was also a lot to manage, to own, to operate, to navigate. Nightlife is not an easy thing. I am friends with two unnamed nightlife folks who are presently trying to get out because it is so hard. Yeah, I, I've often said that owning a place is not much different than hanging out in one. But that's, again, why I, I really don't drink much at all. I've been fortunate enough to stay away from drugs, so that's not an issue for me. But yeah, the late nights and the FaceTime, and it can wear you down. My knees and my hips attest to that. <laughs> not from basketball, though. <laughs> I love it. Now, let's move on to Post and Beam. Because this is, for those who are listening, Baldwin Hills, Crenshaw, Lamert all converge upon one another in Los Angeles, in South LA. Historic Black community where you walk down the street and sometimes there's nothing but Black people there. To walk into Post and Beam for the first time when I did when it first opened and seeing nothing but Black folks sitting down, ordering cocktails in a gorgeous space. I was elated because I just hadn't experienced anything like that in Los Angeles at that time. I still haven't from anywhere else. You launched it originally with Chef Govan Armstrong. What was your vision? Like what exactly brought you there? I can't take credit for the total vision. Ken Lombard, who I've done a couple of projects with prior to that, just a mentor to me. Ken is the type of executive that, as they say, sees around corners. I was a partner with the BLT State Group and Ken approached me and said, man, I'd like to you know, take you for a ride and show you this opportunity. And it was the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. While I had friends in that neighborhood, Thelma Hopkins is an old friend of mine. She lives up the street from, from the mall. I had been in that neighborhood quite a bit. I never thought about doing any business over there. It just didn't look like it was ready for that. Ken drove me around and we went through all the neighborhoods, Ladera, View Park, Baldwin Hills. He discussed with me what the plans were for the mall and said, look, if you would do a signature place over here, we'll back it. 
and give you the support that you need. And uh, we know it's a risk, but we think that you're the guy and will you do it? I said, yeah, I'm going to need somebody on the culinary level that's prominent because I'm afraid that the press, this is before there was a Mona Holmes, I'm afraid <laughs> that the press is going to just overlook us if I don't have someone of credibility. Um, Naisha Arrington was starting to make some noise, but she was in the islands at that time. I had met Govind at VLT and, and we really, we clicked. And took him out there and showed him the space he said he was in. And uh, that let me know that the culinary side of things would be taken care of. Mona, it's funny because it feels like full circle. Post and Beam is the closest thing that uh, I've been involved with to my dad's place, the cellar. Community-based, regular guests. We'd see people in there five, six times a week. A regular bar crowd that I looked forward to every day at four o'clock. My Reggie's, Ron's, and, and Rob's, all the R's, they'd all pile into the oh, bar. Oh, I met those Reggie's and Ron's <laughs> when I sat there one afternoon, uh, actually twice, and they came each time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was that kind of place. And the food, of course, lived up to it. We had some challenges with trying to break the mold, what some of the folks expected from a, quote, Black-owned restaurant serving the kind of food that we were serving. But I think they soon saw what our mission was. And I felt so embraced by that community out there. I have to say, the first time that I saw you walk through the door and sit down, I, I knew you were coming, but I didn't know you were you. <laughs> Having been in the business, Mona, as long as I have, I know we've talked about this before, but it's so significant to me because for so long, there I didn't know any Black food writers. So to have met you in the last few years and, and the fantastic piece that you wrote when we were signing off a Post and Beam, that really was a, a great exclamation point on the run that we've had there. So thank you for that. Of course. This is what I do. And also, too, I'm happy to say I have a great relationship with Chef John Cleveland, who took over after Chef Govan Armstrong, who I think is not only one of the loveliest people, but just adds a very wonderful, calming presence and and helming a great ship that's post and beam. Back to, you mentioned something a second ago where you said that you had some challenges with introducing post and beams food to some of the folks who frequent a black owned restaurant like post and beam. And it reminds me of a tweet that I had that went viral last year. Because uh, not just New Yorkers trying to place their New York-centric view on Los Angeles whenever they come out here to eat. We don't have chopped cheese, you guys. We do not have bacon, egg, and cheeses out here. We have breakfast burrito and Taiwanese breakfast. It reminds me of just how challenging it can be for chefs. I talk to mostly Black chefs who experience that. Um, where I had one chef mention to me because she makes soulful Caribbean food. And she said, my mac and cheese is not your mother's mac and cheese. It's my mac and cheese. Mm -hmm. And that is what I'm going to serve you. If you want your mom's, go to your mom's. And how it can be really hard for her, she said, with certain audiences, but it can be hard in general and can sometimes make or break a place based on people's expectations. How have you managed that with a place like Post and Beam, which a lot of people assume that it's a soul food restaurant, but it's not. Right. It's got a different flavor. It's got a different edge to it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. David Chang and I, I had him on the podcast and we talked about that too, because he faced the same kind of resistance or surprise reaction from some traditional folks when he first opened up his ramen place in New York. For us, the objective was to represent the food that the clientele, we certainly didn't want to 
completely exclude some of the the hits that we knew would work, the collard greens, cornbread, fried chicken. We knew we wanted to present those dishes, mac and cheese. Mac and cheese is always like the litmus test. It's funny. I had <laughs> someone yelp us and say, uh, black folks don't put breadcrumbs on their mac and cheese. I'm like, Goldman's black. <laughs> now they do. But to your point, Post and Bean was a full service restaurant. And everything, every decision that you make affect something else. So if you, at, at, at Doolin's, my wife and I are able to split one of their lunches, right? It's plenty of food for two of us, yes, but they is. have no servers. They have no host. They have no bussers. With Post and Beam, we had all of that. And so the food was served in smaller portions. It was meant for one. Side dishes were meant for one. The mac and cheese would have breadcrumbs on it. We wouldn't put salt and pepper on the table. Just these little nuances. And I think specifically what should a black chef cook a black chef should cook whatever a black chef wants to cook just like any chef should but sometimes the burden of expectation as you mentioned was not like my grandmother did it is the kind of reins that get put on uh, a chef and a concept sometimes i think it's unfortunate but you also want to make sure that you're serving the audience so it's a balance i think that we did have to work that at post and beam and i think we did finally find that and now it's working great. I can tell you that John's doing a phenomenal job and the food is fantastic. And a James Beard Award nomination as a result. So very proud of him. That doesn't hurt. <laughs> By the way, uh, Post and Beam was nominated as a semifinalist for this year's James Beard Awards, which is essentially the Oscars of the restaurant world. So everyone cross your fingers for Post and Beam. Of course, I'm biased to Los Angeles restaurants because that's what I am. I know we're winding down a little bit and we've talked about all these amazing things and all these accomplishments and locations and places that you've lived, but it seems like there is, you have managed to, to forge what I see as really great relationships amongst your accomplishments. Every person that I talked to said that you tend to, this is the thing that you focus on and favor the most, your your relationships with people, the side of your mom that wants to nurture and help people. To me, that is absolutely de the definition of a successful restaurateur. But when I watched you walking around Post and Beam, it was almost as if you were talking to everyone like they had been your friend for 30 years. I assumed that you'd been friends forever, but no, they were just regular customers. What do you attribute that? I think if you're going to be in the hospitality business, <laughs> you certainly should be hospitable. But I also think I, I go back <laughs> to um, something that a, a really dear friend of mine who we lost several years ago said to me that really helped to calibrate this for me and, and put it in perspective. He said, never mistake your arrival for the event. That is how I approach this business. I'm not doing my job if I'm sitting there talking to Denzel and your rum and coke is empty and you're trying to flag a waiter down and I'm not even noticing. I'm not doing my job. As cool as it may look, I'm not doing my job. I always tried to keep that focus. I keep my eye on the door. When anyone's coming in, I make my way over to the door. When anyone's leaving, I make my way over to the door to make sure that I say thank you and good night. It's just basic stuff and all of the stuff in between. Yeah, it's an intricate business and there's a lot of moving parts and it's much more sophisticated than that. But basically, it does come down to the fact that you care about the experience that people are having in the room. That is your main objective. I'd like to think that I've been able to prioritize that and hopefully do a decent job 
of making sure that people were having a good time. Sounds like a simple formula. Maybe it is that simple. And definitely something that I see that's missing, especially now that restaurants right now and bars and cafes are experiencing such a shortage with labor, with a lot of people having left the industry. And it's hard to engage in that similar manner. I absolutely see that as a missing right now and hope that restaurants are able to figure that out. Another thing that I really appreciate about you is how everyone that I interviewed before this actual interview said, oh, you have to ask Brad about when I walked into George's and there was Dr. Dre and at another table, there was Steven Spielberg. And oh, and then at the cellar, there was Lisa Morgan and Luther Vandross's band and whatnot. You've never told me any of these things. You don't get starstruck like ever. I think even one of them said, oh, I was playing basketball with Brad. All of a sudden he goes downstairs because someone was buzzing the buzzer and up comes Whitney Houston. You've not told me any of these things at all. <laughs> but there's all these amazing, iconic figures that have floated in and out of your life, but you just seem very unfazed by any of it. I wouldn't say that I'm unfazed. I'm, I'm like anyone else. I you know, can get excited about being in the company of certain people. But I do know, Mona, that after 40 years of FaceTime and, and greeting people, people are just people. I've been really fortunate to get to meet some good people, some well-known and some whose name nobody knows. I value the no-name people as much as I value the people with names. I feel fortunate in that regard, and I think that's just one of the benefits of having been in a business that people come to and hopefully come back to. Yeah, indeed. And last question. I couldn't have an interview go by without talking to you about your family, about your wife, Linda, and your son. Bryce, I, I know better than anybody when you're taking on things that are ambitious, you having a partner who believes in you and supports you is a requirement. Yeah. <laughs> and to have a son that's got talent. Everyone I spoke to talked to me about the beauty of your relationship with Bryce and how it's just become such an amazing thing because you two are so tight. How does that factor into you being able to do it? Linda changed the game for me, no question about it. She has a financial background, former CPA, former auditor with Arthur Anderson. So she taught me the value of numbers. I had been in the business kind of superficially prior to that. I just enjoyed being in the room and making sure everybody was cool. I really wasn't paying attention to the structure of the deal. And uh, she came into my life and changed that. And we continue to, to work together and we have a, just a beautiful marriage. I, I couldn't be you know more lucky. She's got great taste, a great eye. She's designing a, a house for us over in Miami, a mid-century modern house, and her talents are on full display there. You'll have to come see the house when we're done. Bryce is just a beautiful guy. He is a musician, so that's not an easy field that he's chosen, but he's managing to shine. I really love with the way that he connects with his audience, and we talk about that. I think it's something that I'd like to think that we have in common Although our venues are different, there's a desire to connect directly with people. I see him do that. And I've gone to his shows, Mona, and it's a couple thousand people screaming back every lyric to every song of his. It's just a beautiful thing to watch. I couldn't be more proud of him, but I'm just really happy with the young man that he is. And uh, he's taking it in stride and I just love him. And I feel really fortunate. Good friends, good family. I'm a happy guy. Yeah, I hear that. Brad Johnson, 
Thanks for joining us on the Corner Table Talk podcast. <laughs> Am I out of a job now? Mona Holmes <laughs> has my not. job. <laughs> Absolutely not. Please keep doing what you're doing and bringing us all of these amazing conversations that have inspired myself and all of thank you Mona, and you too I, I really enjoyed doing this with you and thank you for uh, taking my seat i appreciate what you do thanks so much all right ambassador Servaz. <laughs> what did you think of that conversation it's really wonderful first of all welcome to the corner table in this capacity i enjoyed you some sessions back when you were the guest I was really excited to do this part. We both were in, in great anticipation with lots of respect for you. So for me, here and how we move, it moving with a young lady that we admire, that we appreciate, that we understand your lens, your gift, and to be able to share and talk and bring out of my dear partner and childhood friend whom I think just goes unsung, actually, uh, so often to hear what was shared from root to gift, I have to say, because the Brad Johnson people get to know now as a seasoned person is the same Brad Johnson in nature and spirit character that I knew as a teacher. It was really great. This was good. This was fun. I appreciated it. He deserves it. He deserves all things good, I have to say. <laughs> 100%. Your relationship, how old were the two of you when you met? Teenagers. Goodness. Because again, New York is you and I, when we had a pre-talk, zip codes don't determine the line of engagement. They can in other towns. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and there's zip codes in regions and districts. But New York, there's, it's a little bit more fluid based on what Whatever's going on. And so our lives, our paths crossed very early and then continued both with our parents respectively. And we're all part of that wave that went from New York to Los Angeles and that kinship forged an even uh, stronger family ship away from home as we were all involved in business and balancing family and three generations of a family and all of those things. Yeah, indeed. Those conversations and connective tissue that happen over a lifetime can absolutely form who a person is and how they occur in the world. And so I'm sure that Brad's had quite an influence on you and you to him. First of all, the relationship that we have, especially now in our 60s and into the next generation of raising our families, is both reflective and in real time, as well as projectional. There's no judgment, no critique. It's just real acceptance. It's real kinship, real brethrenship, knowing each other from a previous life, so to speak. And we are in sync when it comes to aspirational giving. So it's not just how do you combine that business sense, the thing that moves you, but then what moves us most in each of our respective fields is how the beneficiaries benefit, how the others that we are with and around. So most people always knew him when they walked into a restaurant. I've been in restaurants as and people say, Brad here? They don't even say what's on the menu. They want to see him. <laughs> part. But the same thing happened with his dad. Where's Howard? That was part of the welcoming. It's like going to your grandmother's house. You don't go if she's not there. You yeah. want to feel her in the house, in the room, smell the seasonings when you pull in the parking lot, you're in the right spot, <laughs> that kind of thing. That's the atmospheres for nearly 40 years that have been created in two generations of all things Johnson that made people loyalists. Yeah. 
supporters continuums. And what's really beautiful to me about Post and Beam is that there is yet another continuum while it's not direct lineage, but it feels like it. And that's what we come from. We really make sure that the arteries of continuity are always intact. Yes, we do. Did you ever, well, considering that Brad's mother was Italian, did you ever go over for Sunday dinner? (laughs) No, I didn't go to her house for Sunday dinner, but I've been in a whole lot of Italian homes. Of course. notwithstanding in New York, but I didn't always think about what the person was because they were always just a part of you. I had to remember that distinction. She was family. She was my brother's mom. And when I got to Los Angeles, I was hers as well. There was no beat skipped until she made her transition into the world. She was a part of my heart all the time. But what's different in New York, and we talked about this before, as well as you referenced it in your interview, is that no matter whose home you went to, that origin was the definer of your own culture that night. So if it was an Italian home, you were an Italian having dinner and you didn't forfeit who you were, but you joined in the culture, in the atmosphere, in the seasonings, in the plate, the palate of what was defining the dinner that night. For me, I had to travel to realize other places that people may not have been that fluid. And so for me, culture is always key. No matter where I am, is daring to introduce it and knowing that you're going to have to teeter-totter while people get used to the new culture or bridging that culture. Very exciting to hear this interview. I smiled all the way through. I think that's a great way to complete this with what you just said about culture being key and everything. And it's sharing it, just sharing. Yes, yes. Sharing it is what is the most exciting part of my job. And learning more about Brad and how he shares it is just incredible, as well as you. Ambassador Shabazz, thank you so much. It's been a real honor and pleasure both to listen to you on the corner table, to have you uh, with me on how we move, and maybe we can find a way to continue this pendulum of, (laughs) of, of sharing so that more and more people understand the heartbeat in the exchange of food, culinary, the business aspect, but just really the fellowship component is really very key. It is. All right. Like a a wonderful way to conclude and assure that there's a continuum. Hope to see you again. Likewise. 